What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Oh, Glenn, I'm so sorry I'm late. I was just out there training. Where have you been? I was out there training my dog. What took you so long? Well, we were doing this particular scenario mm-hmm. where we were using a hard dog chomp. Yep. I got that from Canon Dynamics, by the way. From old mate Mark LaPointe? Mark LaPointe, yep. yeah. I got uh, I get a lot of my working dog equipment from him. He really flogs some good stuff, doesn't he? Yeah, mm. absolutely. Canon Dynamics. Yeah. And then my dog was attached to a leash and collar. Where did you get that from? I got that from Mindswick Dog Quip. Not the old Buffhead. I got it from Jason. Oh. <laughs> okay. Mindswick Dog Quip. Mindswick Dog Quip. And, and it all went perfectly. Yep. So I- Had you reward the dog? I, I'm very interested. Well, aside from the bites on the chomp, mm-hmm. but, you know, for other things, yep. I gave the dog some Bright's Bites. Oh, good call. Yep. Bright's Bites. You really are a name dropper, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> You've got the best of the three. You've got the golden triad right there. Absolutely. Mm. If you want, you know, if you're in North America and you want working dog equipment, yep. Canon Dynamics. Yep. If you're in Australia and you want any kind of dog equipment, Einswick Dog Quip. And if you're going to use dog treats, you're crazy if you're feeding your dog anything other than Bright Spice. Absolutely. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And on the phone, after a good hour of trying to get it set <laughs> up and working, all the way from South Dakota, we have Sammy Joe Manning. Sammy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad you guys asked me to be a part of it. Thanks for accepting. We're really appreciative that you uh, could join us. And as Pat said, we went through a lot of technical difficulty trying to get it together, but we're all here together and we're going to have a good time. Yeah, definitely. So we got to meet, oh, I got to meet you at the ISCP. I think it was Adrian Little that introduced us. We were out the front of the gala and I met you for the first time. You were all dressed up to the nines, I think. And she brought me over to you and said, you should speak to Sammy. She's really interesting. She's done a whole bunch of stuff. I think you guys did Starmark Academy together or something like that. Is that right? Yeah. So when I was a student at Starmark, Adrian was one of the trainers there and I just really clicked with her from the first time I met her. So I just kind of followed her in her progress since she left Starmark. Well, why don't you tell us about your Starmark journey? Because there's quite a lot of people over in the US and I mean, it's not dissimilar to what I do with the uh, National Dog Trainers Federation over here, the NDTF. That's kind of like the equivalent coaching academy. I mean, there's obviously other places that you can do it, but let's talk about your journey, where you started, what made you get into it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So honestly, you know, like my journey with dogs started, you know, since I was very small, my dad was a guide for a pheasant hunting lodge. So he always had very trained dogs. And since I was probably 10 to 12 years old, I was actually running dog tournaments with my dad's trained dogs. And they were very obedient to obviously a 10 year old out there and a mentor with them. And just being able to be out there, I grew up, you know, just in the field, with really high performance athletic dogs and 
that just kind of brought me into the dog world, being able to be around very well-performing dogs. And from there, I just knew that I wanted to work with dogs. Everybody, you know, my age were just kind of branching off doing their own thing and doing the same path, going to college, getting everything that you do. And I was like, man, I want to do something different. And I went to Texas. I started at Starmark in, man, I think I went down there right in August. So I was in a fall class. I really enjoyed my Starmark journey. I loved my instructors a lot. One of them is actually now in Minnesota, which is a neighbor to me. So that's really cool. I am a very busy body, so I actually loved the structure and the schedule that they had because it was a very, you know, working hard organization, which I really enjoyed because it kept me busy and I'm a pretty busy body as is. Mm -hmm. Let's just go back a step there. You said that your dad was a guide on a pheasant hunting ranch, did you say? Or So how does that work? Yeah. What, what, talk, talk me through that. That's really interesting to me because we do not have that in Australia. Yeah. So my dad, you know, was a guide for people who would travel from all over to come hunt wild pheasants in South Dakota, which, you know, yeah, people like you guys are in Florida. They don't have the ability to do that. So my dad in the fall would be gone, you know, majority of the time because he's out there leading guys, showing them how to hunt, showing them, you know, what we do here all the time during hunting season. And I just grew up in that. I grew up with the guys, you know, I was always just a lady or a young girl at that time. And I've always just been in that type of field, kind of being um, an outcast, you can say in a good <laughs> way, but just getting to, you know, do that. And that's just something that's in my blood. I've done it since, like I said, 10 years old and I could shoot, you know, I've just been able to grow up in that type of industry. Mm -hmm. And the dogs that you said you're doing that with. So you said they're hunting with the dogs, but then you said also running competitions with them. So is there much difference between like a dog that is a real world, you know, retriever and out there, I presume that they're flushing and retrieving, right? Yeah. So here in South Dakota, we usually have two primary type of hunting dogs, you could call them. We have upland and we have waterfowl. Mm -hmm. So upland is going to be your pheasants, your chucker, things that are, you know, the dog has to flush, you have to shoot and it's on land. Waterfowl is going to be like you're putting out duck decoys and you're calling in ducks and your dog is sitting in a blind with you and you're releasing them once you've shot the birds. So it is a different picture for those dogs. And as far as the competition, I will say that I'm very new into the journey of, you know, in the hunt world and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But I will say that the competition versus the like working with the dogs in real world scenarios are a little bit different. Um, I think there are some organizations, there's a lot of competition organizations and some definitely replicate um, a hunt more than others. And some are strictly obedience to gunfire to, you know, using a lot of the dog's technical mind. Mm -hmm. And you can definitely tell the difference between the dogs who run those their whole life and the dogs who are more real world working dogs. For example, 
I have a lab right now who I've done all of his training and now I have him with a really good trainer who, like I said, I'm moving. So I knew this summer was going to be busy. And usually summer is a great time to get your dog in for competitions, titles, because you're not hunting birds. There are, there's no season to hunt birds. So it's kind of a good off season thing to do with your dog and to train with them. So Tex, he's my lab. He's, you know, with a really good trainer, just tuning him up, getting him more titles, helping me, you know, keep him rolling and going with that. And just with Tex having one, a a few waterfowl seasons and going from three months of hard, hard, hard waterfowl hunting to now competition season, he definitely has resorted back in some ways, like using his nose more Mm -hmm. and not using his eyes as much, you know, which makes the competition part harder. He doesn't want to listen to, you know, a, a whistle cast or he wants to actually use his natural ability and not be disciplined enough to take a whistle cast away from his instinct. So you do have to kind of fight that a little bit and depending on you know, what you're going to do with your dog, but some dogs, they run competitions their whole life. They don't know, they don't know anything else. So it's definitely a different world. And I truly have been finding out it depends on what you want in your hunting dog. You know, do you want the titles and all of this, or do you want to enjoy your dog out hunting as well? And there's dogs out there and trainers who do it really, really well. There's trainers out there who I'm sure you guys can relate that they don't have time to, you know, go out and actually do their hobby, Mm -hmm. you know, for these guys, which is hunting. So they can't really practice too much. You know, they might only get to go two or three times on a hunt over a season versus myself who this is you know what I love to do so I'm making sure every weekend's free for me so I can go work my dog in a slew yeah yeah that's really interesting to me because you know to us in the bite sports there's this constant you know it's this ebb and flow between a sport dog and a real dog right and and there'll be people who tell you that you know one can't be the other uh and the truth is that it's more of a training thing rather than the dog for starters, you know, the same dog, the the same dog with the good genetics and right traits can go down two different pathways and a sport dog can work the streets sometimes and a street dog can compete in sports sometimes. And, and it sounds like it's pretty much the same sort of thing with you in the hunting there, right? Like that, but a jack of all trades will be probably be a master of none. Right, exactly. And, you know, some of these pro trainers also just depends how much time they get out for you guys, like work the street. Mm-hmm. How, how often is that dog getting that experience? How often is that dog getting out there and being under 10 guys? They're all shooting the guns. They're picking up real live birds. They're having these in their noses versus it's a very set and key type scenario where you know where that bird's going to land. You know where, you know, you need to cast your dog, you know, so you're already seeing that set up in hunting. You're just like, if they were working the streets, you never know what's going to happen. And you have to have a dog who wants it and wants to go with it Mm. and will give them your whole heart. That's interesting. It's kind of like a dichotomy of control, right? Like, whereas, so in the sport you're in control and you're trying to show that you have taught the dog to do the things that you want. Whereas in the hunting, you're relying on the dog because you don't know where the birds are. You're relying on him to actually find those for you and flush them properly rather than you saying it will come from here, go to there. 
Yes and no. So when we're talking about the upland, definitely, like you're relying on those dogs' nose. Growing up, I was in Dakota Outdoor Gun Dog Series competitions, and those competitions are timed competitions. So you had 15 minutes to get out there, flush, retrieve, shoot three birds, and pocket them, full retrieves. So it looked like I started at a starting line, I let my dog loose, and I I trusted you worked with the wind, you did all of this stuff, you had to flush the bird, not only flush it, but your shooting relies on it. Mm -hmm. So shooting the bird and your dog has to make a full retrieve. So a force fetched retrieve has to be made. The dog can't be mouthing around Mm -hmm. and you also can't leave that spot. So once you've shot, your feet are planted. That dog has to bring Uh, that back all bird all the way back to you before you even and once you have your bird in your bag then you can continue on Mm -hmm. so you know when we're talking about upland which my dad being a pheasant hunt guide he is all upland so that's you know strictly what he does and it's fun it's adrenaline you know you got to trust that dog's nose and you know the first few times you'll see a dog do that and it's fun to see that light bulb come off because once the dog realizes, man, you know, I have to work the wind, I have to get the bird up, I know how to do this, they catch on. But there's a lot of new dogs that people don't do. They might just go hunt pheasants, you know, through the season and try out a competition. Mm-hmm. And it's a chucker. It's a different bird. And the dog's got to figure out, hey, this is, this is, you know, a game like this is once we have three, we leash up, we leave. And my dad's been competing with his dogs and they, they know the game. Like they know what's up. Mm -hmm. Um, that's when you're, you know, going with the drive, you have to trust your dog and you have to know when your dog is getting birdie is what we call it. They're showing you every sign that they're sent in that area and you're watching them, the body change. Sometimes we call it like a tail flip, like their tail will turn completely different when they're in scent. And you just have to know your dog. You have to read your dog's language. When we're talking about waterfowl hunting, and I will tell you, I was not a waterfowl hunter until I met my boyfriend. That's all he did. So once I got to decoy birds into an area and be able to watch my dog sit in a blind under control, so much control as he's watching six, seven, eight birds go down and he's marking every single one and Mm. I get to release him on every single one. And once I got into that, I just was hooked because I like them both, but I love being able to watch my dog bust through sloughs and ice and water to grab a bird, to come back, to go do it again on a memory bird that he could have forgotten about, but he knows exactly where they're at. Mm -hmm. Or Honestly, what I love it for is when you have a cripple, you don't have to run 200 yards. Your dog is already on them and it's saving you a lot of time and energy to get out and go try to run down a cripple goose. And and so on that, then tell me about the scent picture, because I'm always interested in people in hunting. Like traditionally, I think that a lot of bird dog people and certainly hunting people that we see in Australia, pigs and that sort of thing, they rely almost entirely on genetics and Traditionally, you'd see a lot of people wouldn't even start a dog until it was, you know, pretty old, like Mm -hmm. over a year old, because they weren't really into the training of the dog. It was more of a monkey see, monkey do. You put them with other dogs and they go, especially in pig hunting type stuff, right? They just kind of... Yeah. It's just, you leave, them on, yeah, you leave them on the truck. They go, they go with other dogs and it's not until they're pounding at the cage, trying to get off with the other dogs that you let them go and they kind of figure it out. But how much now, like in that world that you're in, have you seen 
a, a change in the culture where now younger trainers, or not necessarily younger, but people are more interested in the training of the dog and are perhaps imprinting scent from a really young age. Like before you would ever dream of letting a dog go out and retrieve a bird, but are teaching a, a dog like, hey, this is a scent that you should be interested in. I think that really depends on what type of hunter, trainer you're talking about. You know, for me, if I'm trusting a dog to go retrieve whatever it is that just fell out of the sky, I'm starting retrieving at eight weeks old. The day Mm -hmm. I brought Tex home, I had a little teal and I was throwing that out. I was just teaching him like, hey, you go out, you bring things to me. We've got this trust. It's a game. And for him, you know, a lot of that and, you know, my dad's labs, we're primary lab family. When you get into upland and all of those things, there's a lot of different breeds that go into it. Mm -hmm. Primarily, all the dogs are going to do the very similar things. It's not, you know, like police sports where you just have Malinois and shepherds, you know, there's or duchies. It's very diverse on what type of hunting dog you might be under. Just speaking of, you know, labs, if I'm teaching my dog to retrieve and go into hunting, one thing that I always start on is just building that trust to retrieve. I just want that dog to love going out, grabbing something and bringing it back because in any type of training or hunting thing that you're going to do with your dog, that dog can't let that bird go when it's two feet away and it flies away. Mm -hmm. So I really like to build that and run with it. As far as, you know, the scent pool and everything that goes with that, I think it, you know, depends much on what you are training for upland and competitions like that. Yeah. Your dog needs to know what a pheasant smells like or chucker smells like. And that starts, you know, at, taking a pigeon or a chucker that's something small puppy size that that puppy gets to take out its prey drive that puppy just gets to experience the smell the prey drive the retrieving all in one and then you know from there the waterfowl stuff Tex definitely uses his nose when he's in a slough and he can't see and he has to rely on his smell but most of his things are off his eyes it's marking where that bird falls and trying to figure out, you know, his best route to get there straight line, straight back and going over whatever obstacles in the way. I will say like hunting behind setters or pointers or labs. I've always seen in the competition that the dogs have carried over well with changing from like a chucker to a pheasant to quail, um, that not being a huge issue. And for the competitions, which would be your, Something what I do with techs is AKC or I'm sorry, UKC HRC tests, which are very stimulated like hunts. So it's it's supposed to teach the dog what it would do in a real hunting scenario. And they have different levels. And there's also an AKC route that you can do as well, like started hunter, I believe, and master hunter. That might not be the exact titles I go with that. I don't compete in those, but you know, with those, they're supposed to be set up very hunting stimulated and you're always using waterfowl. So you're using ducks. They don't use geese in competitions, but those are the two things I have. And when decoying ducks in, I might shoot a wood duck or a mallard. They smell completely different, but they're a duck and my dog, it's not his job to sniff out and be like, Oh, this is a mallard. I want to bring this one back. It's his job to go out, pick whatever fowl from the sky and bring it back. Mm. That's interesting. It's, it's very complex. It is. There's a lot of layers to, yeah. to going out and hunting. Obviously, it's a lot more popular in, in the United States. You know, we used to have 
and we still do, we have duck hunting seasons. It's largely come under fire in Australia. Like it became quite unpopular because, well, pretty much what hunters were doing was just blasting away and killing a lot of endangered species at the same time. They, I'm certainly not painting the good hunters out in a bad light because they are good conservationists. They follow the rules. They do everything they're supposed to do, like all responsible people. However, there were a lot of weekend warriors that would get out there, start killing swans and all sorts of things, which would just completely outrage people. And that's the reason it came under fire in Australia quite a lot. How do you guys find it in the United States? Is it, it seems to be quite popular in a lot of circles or do conservationists uh, still give you a lot of grief over hunting sports? You know, I will say when the AKC took down, you know, greyhound racing, all of that stuff, they definitely threatened coming over our, for, you know, the HRC test, all of those bird dog tests. I will say it's kind of died down since then. I wouldn't be surprised if that's something they go for because we are using dead animals that are humanely killed, but you know, they have to replicate what it would be in a hunting scenario. We can't use dummies and then ask our dogs to go out and pick up something with feathers. That would just be completely different. But as far as the hunting side, We have great laws. We have great um, limits. And of course, there's always going to be idiots out there that screw it up for the rest of us. But for the most part, the Midwest, the United States area, we are very, I would say, an outdoorsy area in general. And hunting is a very popular thing for the people that are near me and that I have the connections with. I say like my Facebook list is half dog people, half hunting people. And that's literally... (laughs) all I know. Yeah. Nice. Hey, so that's a cool background. So you've been involved in that sort of, as you say, since you were 10 years old. And then when you went to Starmark, how did you find the transition uh, between, you know, being really heavily involved in a very specific aspect of dog training to then going to, you know, the generalized understanding of pet dog training? What was really helpful to carry over? And also what did you find sort of inhibited you at all? If anything, Mm, good question. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, So when I got back from Starmark, being where I live, there are hunting trainers up the wazoo. There just is so many around here because it's what everybody wants. Everybody wants a hunting dog because they hunt. And once I realized I really loved the waterfowl, I loved knowing about breeding. I really wanted to have a dog that I could better the breed and eventually compete and do these things with. I knew I wanted to do waterfowl. And I also knew that as soon as I would start doing that or getting into the hunting dog world, I would never be able to enjoy what I do with my dog. Mm -hmm. So I really tried putting my hobbies. I don't train other people's dogs to do. So I don't train other hunting dogs because I want to put everything I love, I learn, and I grow with into my own dog. And I want to take it out and love every time I go out with my dog. And like I said before, when you're training other people's dogs, you never have time for your own dogs. And that summer, this summer was definitely that summer that I was experiencing until COVID happened. But I just wanted to make sure that I had the drive to keep training what I love. And I wasn't getting burnt out by other people's dogs ruining it for me, not ruining it, but just taking out all my energy for it. And, you know, going to Starmark, I realized there's a lot of people out there that just need 
communication, relationships with their dogs. They Mm -hmm. just need that. They need someone to instruct them the best way to communicate with your dog or set a clear example for their dog. And, you know, that a lot of even people I know are lacking that. So I was like, I really want to help people in that scenario. And I want my hobbies to be something that I make sure I set time for. And I love it. And me and my dog connect through this. And I don't get burnt out doing what I love. Mm. Yeah, that's a great idea. I think for sure, it's easy to get burnout when your your job and your hobby meld into being the same thing. Into your jobby. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like that happened to me recently at the end of last year. Someone was like, so Pat, what do you do for fun? What do you do other than dogs? Mm. And I just stood there with a blank look on my face. I do dogs <laughs> and like, then I dogs. No, because dogs was my hobby and mm. now it's my full-time job. And now I, I really don't know who I am outside of this. Uh, so I think, yeah. you, I think it's been really, that's wise of you to, to separate those two. Yeah. And I know that like my whole life will always revolve around dogs because it just will. And I love that. But I just wanted to make sure that, you know, on the weekends when I was out doing training or competing with my own dogs, it wasn't something that I was continuing to do with everybody else's dogs so that I still had all the energy to put into my own dog. Perfect. And so in the behavior mod type stuff, the pet dog training that you're talking about, do you get a lot of just the, the the dogs that you're dealing with? Are they typically just people's pets or are they also very highly trained hunting dogs that don't know how to live outside of the, the hunting uh, environment, like just, you know, hanging out in the house? Yeah. So I have a few of those dogs I have worked with and, you know, just teaching them how to relax and condition, you know, a good response to being in the house. Mm-hmm. But I will say, you know, majority of them are pet parents who aren't knowing how to work with their dogs and be on the same page with their dogs and, you know, know anything really about their dogs. And then I'm crazy because I have like a little bit of everything in what I do at my work. But then I'm on the other side of the scale. And when I compete, I train my dogs in there's one thing that I, I do as a hobby and I train other people's dogs in. So I kind of lied there and that's dock diving. And, you know, once people get into that sport, I would say, you know, 90% of the dogs I work with in dock diving, they're pretty highly trained dogs, not in the hunting training world. Some of them do cross over because that's a pretty easy sport to cross over with. Mm -hmm. But there I get to kind of take my clients and I get to build these athletes and build drive and love doing that. So that's kind of my outlet to be able to do that with my clients when they want to do it and their dog wants to do it, being able to kind of build that. Where do you work? Tell us about your facility yeah. that you're at. I work at Paws Pet Resort here in um, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And a little bit about us. I hope you guys like the story because I just love talking about why I do what I do. Paws was actually created to be a revenue source for charity. So the owner here, her name is Janine, and she is amazing. She started this business so that the money that we raise through dogs could go to third world countries and local charities and raise money for something better than ourselves. Wow. So, yeah. So like when the dog stays here, what we have here is we have boarding, daycare for dogs, grooming, training, and we also even do like kitty condos. So we take like eight cats so they can just, it's a little kitty hotel. So we have this really nice, pretty place and 
a portion of your proceeds, if you were to drop your dog off, $5 of every boarding stay is going to four charities, two of those being local charities and two of those actually being um, world-minded charities. So Mission Haiti is a really big organization that we fully support. Like they always are going to get a portion of our proceeds along with Partners Worldwide. And Partners Worldwide is an organization that teach people in third world countries how to get out alone to maybe buy a cow and then milk it, sell it, you know, use it for meat and learn how to pay back that loan. So it's teaching people how to, you know, become owners of their own businesses that mm-hmm. have never had this education before. And Mission Haiti, they're just an amazing organization. And it's about uh, a little community, um, Tier Revere in Haiti, and just educating, bringing these people in this little village, Christ and education, and just being able to build these people in there. And then we always rotate our two local charities. So we pick rescues here or right now it's actually a kids outdoor foundation. So getting kids in the outdoors. So we always change up those local charities so that people here are getting you know benefits from our business as well. That's cool. Yeah, that's very benevolent. What I will add too is prior to you coming on air, we were sharing photos of each other's resorts with each other. And your place looks absolutely amazing. It is as neat as a pin and it's a very attractive looking facility. Thank you. So we're actually opening up our second building right next to the first building because we just got such an overflow that we had to start turning away clients with only being two years into it. And I'm talking about like more of the boarding and the daycare, those pet parents who need those services. Mm -hmm. So we were able to open up another building right next to ours with also now we're going to do an indoor pool so that we can do dock diving year round. Nice. So if anyone hasn't seen the little pool that you've got there outside, not the dock diving pool, but the the one that you've got for just the bone shape, the bone shape pool, it looks so cool. Yes, yeah, it, the dogs will love that. Yeah, it looks really nice. And uh, I, I noticed that all the yards are all artificially grassed and you've got like beautiful shade umbrellas and everything out there. It really is impressive, like the, the way they've set it up and how neat you guys have kept it all. Does it still look like that now after a couple of years of wear and tear? It does. I mean, I you guys know as well as I do that dogs are crazy and they do gross, messy things and crazy <laughs> things. But yeah, it's been awesome. You know, all the products that we've used have all been amazing our turf is awesome and yeah we just really try to keep it clean and healthy just a great calm atmosphere for the dogs who are away and also be able to provide services for the people who need us as well and keeping it top notch it's an interesting thing i get asked a lot about kennel design mainly because i've been in the industry for such a long time it's one of the areas that i help consult on it's one of the areas where i specialize in in the job that i do now like people say to me okay well this is what i want to do this is what the construction material i want to use and when they show me the plans i said look i hate to be the one to tell you but none of this is going to work like what you've actually selected to use uh, (laughs) is definitely not going to work like in five years it's going to be around your ears because the dogs will just bring it down around you And they just look at me with this dumbstruck look on their face. But the way that I describe it to people now is design something that you can contain a miniature cyclone in because that's what what the dog is basically doing inside your resort. 
people's beautiful pets, and this is not to disrespect anybody's pets because they all are lovely, but the way dogs behave at home, and the same way children behave at home, the way dogs behave at home is usually they'll be relatively calm if they've been trained or they've been conditioned to behave a certain way in the house, but they won't behave that way in the resort. So people drop their dogs off the way the same way they drop their little precious children off to school, thinking, oh, my my child's an angel. He never does anything wrong. Or my dog's an angel. They, they never do anything wrong. However, the dog is stimulated when it's there. It's active. You know, it, there's more going on at a resort, far more going on at a resort than there is in any other location they've been to. So the dog, for instead of like uh, raising in the morning, being a bit rambunctious to see their owners go to work, they're moving around for eight to 10 hours a day at the resort. So they're jumping around. They're excited. The girls are moving up and down the corridor, bringing food, cleaning kennels, taking dogs out for play, taking dogs out for training. So there is a lot of stimulation. So Dogs are using muscles they've never used before. They're burning up more calories than they've ever used before. There's a whole range and change of dynamic in the characteristics and behavior of the dog. And getting back to my original point, if you haven't designed your kennel well, if you haven't put some thought into the construction material, the flooring, things that are going to get a a lot of urine on there, a lot of disinfectant and bleaches and so forth, if you're not thinking about that as far as flooring and construction design, you're already in a world of hurt because you're going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and then you're going to have to strip it out again and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to redo it all in no time at all. Yeah, something like just so simple is like drains. Some people don't even realize oh, right. that they need exactly. drains in this. And I'm I feel like we have not enough drains and we probably have 10 times the amount of what someone thinks that we actually need. So people out there, if you're thinking about building yourself a kennel, even just for your own dogs or for a commercial business, as Sammy pointed out, the first thing you've got to start with is great flooring and great drains. That has got to be, you you really need a a hydraulic engineer in there to design that properly. And that's one of the first things I tell people, if you're spending your money, flooring and drains, start with that because the, the it's like anything. I mean, it's like what Pat and I talk to people about around the world in training. It's it's starting with getting your foundation set up properly. You know, you can use that as a metaphor as your own establishment in training or you can talk about it as your building setting. But that has to be done correctly. Definitely. And just knowing too, like something that we are really big on too is the air quality we have in here as well because – You know, just having 120 dogs here on a weekend, one accident can definitely stuff up, you know, a whole area. So we have a specialized HVAC system that will, you know, clean out the air every 10 minutes. So we're sucking out all the old air and bringing new air in so that the air quality is fine if we have a dog who breaks out with kennel cough, it's a very lower chance of another dog getting it because it's not as airborne as it is in a cooped up area. Yeah, that's that's a that's an awesome system. If you mm. change an air every ten minutes, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that's very good. Let's keep going. We've bounced all over the place, but, so, <laughs> but that's as, our as style, do, as we do. <laughs> so you come out of Star Mark. You're you're at Pause now in this amazing facility, uh, and you're teaching you know behavior mod and and dock diving and all that sort of stuff. Keeping hunting for yourself. I'd love to know, like, what do you think over your time since leaving Starmark and being at that facility, what would you call your biggest success? Like when, when you think about like, fuck yeah, I did a good job with that. Is there a dog that comes to mind or is there something that you implemented there? Like what, what, what springs in your mind when you think that? I, I've got to think because, you know, like I definitely have 
when it comes to pause, just the, you know, what I was at pause since the beginning. So I've been able to really create a big community and a very open community of people who aren't, I say this lightly because I don't want to offend anyone, but they are very balanced in what they do. Like mm-hmm. I'm teaching people off leash obedience and trust of a reliable recall on an e-collar and people are getting their eyes opened up so much more that there is more to dog training and doing it the right way and doing it for the dog and being able to carry on that relationship. So all my clients, I've personalized like a really small, I shouldn't say small because it's always growing, um, a Facebook group where we're just like a really tight knit continuing growth family. So, and I'm pretty picky on, you know, some of the clients that get to be in that because I'm sure you guys know that there's some clients that aren't in it for continued success. Mm -hmm. They want, you know, their behaviors fixed and awesome. They're happy. And then I had these clients who are like, all right, what's next or what can we do next? And they are wanting to grow this great relationship that I've built with so many people in so many ways. And I, I see them all the time at dock diving. You know, I have this little tight knit family that I get to see their dogs come out as puppies or as behavior modification. And now they're doing things that they've never thought they could trust their dogs to do be off leash camping with them on a hike. And people are like, I didn't think my dog could ever do this. Or I have a black lab. I taught to dock dive and she won the whole competition last year and she didn't even know her dog could do this. That's cool. I just like those people and those clients that want it. They just want to do more and they want to be a part of a relationship and a family based and they just are wanting to keep growing their dogs and I get to see their dogs progress. Yeah, that, um, that's and awesome. Like, that's just so cool to me because I, I love it and I love those relationships and yeah, it's irreplaceable for sure. I want to swing back around a moment and talk about the e-collar stuff you just mentioned, but Mm. I I do want to open up on what we're talking about there with the dock diving. I think not just from a, a, you know, most of our listeners are industry people, right? But I think not just from a business perspective, but also from a continued success perspective, I think that having a, a funnel you can push people into an ongoing sport or something like that, you know, whether it's dock diving or GRC or, you know, whatever it is that you can then sort of try and funnel your behavior modification dogs into. So the dogs come to you with a problem. You fix the problem within, you know, two weeks, whatever, three weeks. And then you can say to these people, hey, in order to avoid that problem in the future, how about we get the dog into this kind of sport, right? And for you guys, it sounds like that's dock diving. I think that's such an awesome technique to then be able to keep your your hands on people, you know what I mean? So that when they yeah. when they they don't when things slip, they don't slip all the way out of control before you get to intervene again. And as a business model, you got people coming in every week and in charge them for dog diving lessons and all that kind of stuff. But I think the real benefit from it is that is that when something's going wrong with their dog, instead of waiting until it's a real problem, they might just during a dog diving lesson casually mention, "Oh, you know, he growled at my husband yesterday." And you go, "Okay, like that's something we can address right away. Like what happened around that situation rather than waiting it until he bit my husband. Right. Right. Now it's a different conversation that we're having all together. Yeah, too. And just growing that relationship so that you're, I tell everybody, like I'm an open book. Like I don't, I don't have all the answers, but I will do 
my damnest to find the best answer for you. And I know that, you know, your dog, I want you and your dog to be successful. And I tell people I'm not a one track mind. I just want you and your dog to be your dog to be happy, content, and you have the result you want as well. And I just, you know, have that. And I felt like that since being transparent like that and having that type of relationship with my clients, they tell me right away, I get texts at 11 o'clock. Hey, my dog just, you know, reacted to this dog, but why is it doing this? And I have that type of relationship where they don't feel ashamed that their dog might do something weird Mm -hmm. or that someone might look at them and think that's awful. And they have that ability to just come to me and be open and honest with me. Yeah, that's perfect. Mm, Absolutely. And so what you're saying about uh, the e-collar, you said that people are sort of surprised at the way that you're using an e-collar for off-leash obedience and a, a, you know, a tactile use. Is that because, I'm curious there where you're saying like, is that because they're sort of against the e-collar and are now seeing that there's a better way to use it? Or is it because they are pro e-collar, but have used it in a very compulsive way in the past? Yeah. So I guess probably a mixture of both, you know, I will say, um, I do think that people really have gotten the results of some amazing obedience and off-leash freedom and stuff through their e-collars. And, you know, that's something that people really love. I get a lot of referrals that way. And I think, you know, a lot of people think my hunting dog's got to wear a shock collar. Like that's literally all it is here. It's the the hunting dogs and they only know an e-collar from in the field, which some of that isn't as bad because some, I get some dogs that come to me and they've conditioned that e-collar with going out and doing their job and they love it. However, they've never gone through the, using the motivation to go do a command using, you know, low level stim at the beginning, or it's always just been more punishment and just starting dogs off the right way, you know, by drive and building the dogs and working towards that has been something that people are most amazed by. And then also just the results you get that mm-hmm. the dog sees an e-collar and they are jumping for joy. And then they get to go on an off-leash hike and their dog listens on a dime or they're not chasing the other dogs or whatever it might be. And I think it kind of comes from both those ways is we have a lot of hunters that use their e-collars. They might not do any training you know, with the collar at all. They just slap it on when they go into the field. And there's some trainers that do a lot of the e-collar training when it comes to the hunting stuff, which I definitely respect and love those trainers that do it. And then there's just a lot of people who hate them and they don't ever want anything like that because they've just heard negative. So, yeah. It's a complex topic. We could talk about that for hours. I put a video up on Facebook uh, and uh, I think the comment was actually on YouTube and I was actually explaining that there's so many ways you can use an e-collar and then someone got on there and was having a crack at me saying, yes, you could force a dog to do things, but why would you when you can use motivation and food instead? And I didn't write back because I don't engage on YouTube. It's the cesspool of comments, but uh, I was like, you've totally missed the point. The idea is that you don't have to use one. You can use it all. And that like exactly. I literally said in the, in the video that the e-collar can have whatever function you choose to give it. Right. And if you at the low, exactly. the actual low levels, if you want to give it the function of a clicker, you can, uh, if you want to give it the, even if you want to give the e-collar the function of high level aversive stimulation, but pair the low level to mean that you can do that. And I think there's so many avenues that you can go down in that. And people just don't 
you know, if you have a bias, it can be really difficult to get your head around a different use of the tool against mm. that that is in opposition to your bias. Well, the problem is we do live in a society where there are so many people who listen with the intent to reply. Mm. And that's the difficulty is because they're not listening. They're just sitting there waiting to plaster you with their opinion of facts that they don't really understand yet they want to regurgitate parrot fashion, something that they heard from old Jono down the road. And that's a problem for us all over the world is we want to educate these people. We want to be very proactive in it as well. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just that they've got bad information, but they're hanging on it and they refuse to budge on it. And unfortunately, that's their prerogative. If they want to be ignorant to science and facts of how the world really works, well, there's not much you can do. I enjoy it when I sit with people who are very open-minded and have strong opinions, but are still willing to listen and say, okay, I can see merit in it. It's probably nothing that I want to do, but I can see that it would work. And I appreciate you making the time to explain it to me. I think those people are, are pretty awesome people, regardless of whether they want to do it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally get that. And I appreciate those type of people too, because I feel like, you know, those are some of my clients in a way they start out so one track minded and being able to build the relationship and use their dog's motivation and drive and being able to capture this from their dogs. And Mm. I'm like, Hey, you know, like your dog could be off leash with our dogs, you know, in a hike, you know, in the future and being able you know, getting them hungry for the next step and being able to kind of build that. But you have to have the right client as well. And that's something that just going back to what I was saying, you know, having not being able to let things slip, like you said, that's something that I do on kind of my free time is if I'm going and just wanting to work on some off-leash obedience out in a nature area, which we have a lot of, that's, you know, a lot what we do and doing some off-leash hikes, I invite my clients along so that they can come and do an off-leash hike with their dogs. And it's very strict. You know, our dogs aren't there to be be like a dog park and run around and be rude to each other, but it's very structured and the people are structured and the dogs are being able to be social without being too social. And I've been able to do a lot of behavior modification that way because I have some really good clients that also have very good controlled dogs as well. And I trust these people and I know these dogs and I am also hanging out with them, you know, when I'm exercising my own dogs. So it's a nice way to keep them growing and going with it. And I've been able to, you know, teach so many people when we're hiking, I'm talking about the function of an e-collar for a deaf puppy that came in and it's just getting their minds turning. And I just hope that, you know, like that little education can one day as they're talking to their neighbor about how well trained their dog is or how much work they put in with their dog can help out that neighbor's dog as well. I think people have got to come to an understanding themselves over a period of time that your best interest is in helping them and not hurting their dog. In last week's episode, Pat was talking about a win that he had with a lady that uh, he's been working with her for a long period of time. And finally, she succumbed to the fact that her dogs were never going to improve unless she explored using a prong collar. And, you know, some people are just so adamant that they won't do it until the situation gets desperate enough for them. And then they're finally willing to look at it. And the sad thing is, is it can take them so much of the dog's life to finally work out that 
in a very short period of time, you, they, and the dogs can all arrive at a very peaceful negotiation together just with the simple use of a tool. And the thing that, like, it always makes me smile, but it always frustrates me and a lot of other people in, in, in the industry as well, is that it was used in a very beneficial and a very kind manner, yet because of ugly information that's being presented out in society, they've got an image in their head of what it is and what it does and how that you would have used it, which is fundamentally wrong. Right. However, you know, this is our job as educators is not to force things onto people, but to be patient and wait for them to finally make this, the decision with, you know, some encouragement and suggestion from you. However, there's just going to be groups of people that no matter what you say, no matter what science you put before them, no matter how strong or how worded, well-worded your argument is, they just won't come across it because they fundamentally they just want to disagree for the sake of disagreeing. Yeah. So we've talked dogs. We've talked your start in hunting. Let's talk now more about hunting and like your personal life and what you're doing with there. And Glenn was telling me, do you do like hunting education stuff as well? Do you train other people in that or, or not? Yeah. So I'm with an organization called Her Wilderness. And the mission for that is just to get ladies feeling more comfortable doing outdoorsy stuff. So, you know, I'm a trip coordinator for them. And one of the things that I do is put together an enhanced carry permit course. So that they can do concealed carry here in South Dakota. They can learn how to handle a gun, properly shoot a gun, and how to feel confident carrying it and defending themselves in an awful situation that I hope never no one has to encounter, but being able to be really educated. And then, you know, on the flip side of that, and I'm not the one teaching it. I always find better instructors. We had an amazing guy named Rich Ulm, and he's also in the ministry organization. And he was amazing at what he did. He teaches the whole course. I just put everything on for them. But we do have a pheasant hunt coming up in the fall, where I'll just be organizing it as well. And my dad is going to also be guiding because that's his that's his thing. I'll be able to, you know, run my own dog and his dogs and yeah, just go out and hunt. And some of these ladies are coming from all around the United States because they don't have pheasants. And some of them are my friends that are coming along as well. So um, it's just a good time to get people out. I've always felt like being a lady and hunting just in general with how popular it is. I personally feel like it's hard to get into the group because mm -hmm. you either have to be doing it for a long time or you have to know the connections. Just like with any group, you know, it can be pretty clicky. I just am not that type of person. So I've, you know, always struggled finding just well-rounded people to be around in the women, I should say, to be around in whether it's dog sports locally or girls hunting, you know, just those type of things. So I've loved being a part of her wilderness because these ladies are hungry to grow and learn about hunting and also going somewhere brand new to hunt with, you know, these strangers and becoming friends through the process. So it's very cool for with them. I'm going on a cool f uh, fishing trip in um, Wisconsin here at the end of June. So I'll be traveling, you know, by myself up there and meeting, you know, some new ladies and we're going salmon fishing. So. Cool. I think that's a really good idea. Mm, I think that's same. awesome. And you must be across the whole gamut of things then, because you're talking about concealed carry all the way through to hunting. So you're teaching 
or having people teach everything from handgun, long gun, shotgun, the whole lot, right? Yeah. You know, me personally, I, you know, have shot big game, which is needing rifles. And I'm also, you know, waterfowl and upland. So having a shotgun and handguns have never actually been in my realm, but taking this class and working on that has definitely done um, me wonders learning kind of into that more into that self-defense area. It's an interesting one. I, like people are often surprised when I travel around, I guess people know in Australia that we have these insane gun laws. Well, not insane gun laws. We just have very strict gun Overzealous. laws. Well, we just have a different culture on guns. And, mm. and so we have very, very strict gun laws. And to own a handgun, you can't have a handgun for self-defense. That's not a reason you can have one. To have a handgun, it's got to be target shooting and you've got to go every month. And so it's very, very rare that people have handguns. But then I think people have it, you know, not having a gun culture here. People have it in their mind like, I will just get the gun and I will know how to how and what to do with it. And it's like, <laughs> wrong. no, it doesn't go like that. And I think people, no. people are often surprised, you know, I was in the army for 12 years. I carried a gun for that the whole time. You know what I mean? So like, I'm, I'm not a typical Australian and it's, there's a lot to it. There's a mm. lot to making sure, first of all, that you don't shoot yourself by accident. And then there's the whole point of like getting it out and rehearsing that and using it like, you know, rehearsing a way that you're going to perform with the gun. Now, whether that is with intent to be self-defense or whether that is hunting or whatever, it is not as simple as like, oh, just get this. And yeah, I think the normal civilians, when you say to them, okay, like I've had people say to me, I want you to teach me how to shoot. And I go, okay, the first thing you've got to understand is the theory of the group. And they're like, the what? That does like like yeah. That's you, your bullets aren't going through the same hole every time. Like that's not how it works. We have to understand. Like go strip it all the way back to the basics if you actually intend to be good with this. And so is that the kind of detail that you're going into people? Like you're going all like right down to the foundation of these things. Yeah, with the concealed carry, definitely. You know, we learned all the way about how what goes into the bullet versus what empowers that bullet to come out of that handgun. And I will tell you, you know, the first time when I shot that handgun, I've shot handguns here and there, but this is my first time educating and actually going with it. And um, the first few times I shot it, it was very, very weird and uncomfortable to me. Luckily, you know, having the history with guns, I was able to kind of, you know, get over that quickly. But it it was weird. It wasn't, you know, I tell and I told the instructor this too, you know, I could shoot my shotgun, you know, with my eyes closed because I I feel it so much. Mm-hmm. I carry it so much, you know, in the hunting season. And I just feel very, very comfortable with that. The handgun was just completely new to me and just learning how to do that. So I think it's very cool that over this time, I've been able to get very comfortable with a shotgun and a rifle that I can load and unload very quickly, but also, you know, teaching the safety. And that's something that I'm very big in of who I hunt with. And my dad's instilled that to me. He's also never let me just go on hunts with, you know, while I was 12 years old, he didn't let me go hunt with a group of people who this was their first hunt mm-hmm. because he just knew there you might run the risk of it being a little bit more unsafe. Even now hunting with my boyfriend, I am very picky on who I let hunt with my dog and who I let hunt with myself because I know accidents happen very quickly and I want people who have the same type of characteristics and obedience to safety that yeah. I do because it is very important, just like you said, getting comfortable that you don't shoot yourself, you don't shoot the dog, you don't shoot, you know, something else. It can be very intimidating. Yeah. I think I'm mm. glad to say that because it, 
that's a big part of, I think, what people don't understand about is those hunting groups and that sort of thing is the amount of training that goes into that. Absolutely. It's never just like, here you go, off, off you go, good luck, see how you go. Mm. Like to do that properly, there's a whole front loading of information that comes into it. it it's exactly like dog training. You can't, it's, you can't just whack the e-collar on the dog and hope for the best and without you first knowing how to use it. Like, mm. what does this button do? What does this button do? It's the same with, the, with, with all kinds of firearms is understanding exactly how does this thing actually work? What are the ramifications of, of pushing this? What, what does that open that to? What, what world does that open up to me? Yeah. There's another thing too, if anyone looks at your Facebook profile picture, is that you're really into the the real spirit of hunting because you're standing waist deep in water with a <laughs> shotgun in your dog and a, and a great big smile on your face. And other things that people don't understand about going out hunting as well is that you've got to get comfortable with being really uncomfortable sometimes. You know, you've got to wait, you've got to walk, you've got to lug a lot of material with you. It's so multifaceted that people just don't understand. And as Pat said, and you've pretty much relayed the whole time you've been talking, is that there is a, a lot. You, you're pretty much a pack mule. You're going out into the wild, but you're taking a lot of things, oh, a lot sure. of things, a lot of material with you. So it's not just a lovely walk in the in the woods and you know firing off a couple of shots here and there. It is planning. It is strategy. It's survivalism. There's a ton of things that have got to be considered. Yeah, and I will say like. Now bringing my own dog into it, like, yeah, it's added more gear. It's added way more control. A lot of times I'm not getting to shoot as much as I want to shoot because I'm also making sure my dog is obedience to gunfire and he's marking right. So it's a lot of, you know, being back and forth. And now, you know, where I'm at with my career with hunting and stuff, I feel very comfortable doing that. But, you know, that's not something I would ever have been comfortable in previous because, it is very uncomfortable and there's a lot of things that you're out at 3 a.m. in the morning and it's pitch dark and you don't, I'm not very good at my bearings. Justin's in the military, so he's a little bit better at that. But, you know, you're putting up a lot of stuff in the middle of the night and also you've got to read the weather, the birds, mm -hmm. you know, what you're hunting and knowing how to work with that. I literally learn something new every single time I go out. <laughs> yeah. It's a skill and an art It's and it's fun. Yeah, it is very fun. And, you know, that's why I, I just really try to keep my hobbies to my hobbies with the dogs, you know, I have, cause I have three other dogs that I do actually their own sports with. And they're also, you know, sports that I usually don't train with and I can't do with because I am still growing and learning in that hobby and I just want to keep going with it. Yeah, that's cool. What other, what other sports do you do with your dogs? My shepherd was my first dog that I got and she's actually um, certified in search and rescue. So okay. we do air scent and that's just been something that I love to do with her. And I've literally learned so much through this dog just in that thing that my next dog is going to be way better because I've done a <laughs> lot of mistakes on my first dog. Yeah. I've changed things on her a lot, but I met some amazing mentors that have just helped me. And I know there's going to be so many more mentors out there that will help me with that type of thing. So that I do. And then I also am into the confirmation. So I'm really new into that. So show dogs and I have a Dalmatian that I got just Dalmatian. Yeah. Um, I brought him to the IACP conference. He was okay. the baby Dalmatian walking around. Okay. I think I remember that. Yeah. I remember him. Yeah. He was little then, but yeah. So I got him and 
just learning a whole different branch because the dogs that I have are very performance, Mm -hmm. high drive dogs. Here now I'm getting into the show world where there's some amazing handlers that do other stuff with their dogs, but it's a whole different type of look. You know, the lab that I hunt with every day is not the show lab you see in the ring. So it's definitely new and cool to watch. And just learning, you know, more about the breed stock and just like what makes a good dog. And it makes me kind of appreciate the dogs when I see a very well-bred, genetic, nice dog. So, um, yeah, those two things have definitely been able to keep me busy and keep me appreciating what I do. Hey, Sammy, I don't know if we got into it before, but do you breed the dogs that you use for hunting or do you buy them from someone? Just with my dad and myself, I've bought since, you know, just little puppies and Tex, my lab, I bought him from a a litter of two really nice dogs. You know, in the future, I do plan to breed Tex to the right female. However, that time will come when it comes and it's got to be the perfect match for performance lines as well. But he would be probably my only dog that I breed. Right. Okay, cool. Unless, of course, um, my Dalmatian, I do co-own him with his breeder. If they wanted to breed him because he turns out amazing and he's getting all these points in the show ring, he definitely could be bred too. But since I'm so new to that, I would have no idea, you know, what I'm looking for. So that'd be a good learning experience for me to get into. Hmm. Sounds like you're pretty busy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Literally every weekend, it's like competing in a new dog thing and stepping out of my comfort zone, but that's okay with me. That's awesome. I think it's competition for dog trainers is so important. Mm-hmm. Getting It's a, you know, a benchmark. And as we've discussed already like that, you don't want to get bogged down in, you know, your, your, what, the part of the sport and the part of dog training that you love just becoming another part of the daily grind, keeping your, your, your own part fresh as well as, you know, striving to striving to win, striving to get titles, that kind of stuff is what keeps you going forward, I think. Well, it certainly does for me anyway. Yeah, I agree, you know, and, you know, for me, competing is very intimidating and the training is the thing that keeps me going because for search and rescue, I've changed so many things on my dog and seeing her, I just feel way more connected because I've been able to see these changes and work towards a better, reliable alert and things that go along with that nature. I will tell you, I panic anytime I certify, but like, (laughs) it's because I get anxiety about all the craziness that's about to happen. But at the same time, like it is totally worth it because of all the training that has led up to it and being able to see my dog grow each time and definitely get that feedback. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm. Hey, thanks for your time today. We won't keep you too much longer, especially since it took us an hour to get going. <laughs> Tell yeah, us. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. How can people get in contact with you? Give us all your your socials and everything. If you want to follow along on my hunting page and all of my stories and stuff on Instagram, it's Sammy Menning. So it's just S A M I M E N N I N G. I follow all of my or I post all of my dog stories, my personal hunting experiences and all of those things but as far as you know pause pet resort if you look us up on facebook we're pause pet resort here in sioux falls south dakota and our website is pausepetresort.com nice awesome hey thanks again for your time yeah really appreciate yeah, it Sammy. thank you guys thank you
All right, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump onto patreon.com. Which we've given very, very detailed instructions on. on. Yep, Hmm. search the Canine Paradigm there and jump into one of those tiers. Three bucks a month gets you an extra episode. Ten bucks a live Q&A on that and $20 gets like odd random presents from us. Yep. And you can support the show by jumping on a Teespring and buying some cool outfits, some cool, cool merch. Yeah, look rep good the brand. sweaty in our merch. Yeah. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to post in the discussion group. Mm-hmm. Or you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. That's it. Glenn, have you fixed that music nope. button yet? Nope. Still haven't done it. No okay. fix. Well, uh, goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>